attention to what's being said, but how it's being said. In other words, uh, sometimes an author-centeredness can give you insights into the gospel and gospel spirituality that simply doing faithful uh, exposition or faithful study of the text, um, which is always rewarding, but for instance, that's kind of what we did in the first hour. You know, the goal there was to say, all right, let's uh, let's refresh ourselves with what it means to know that we weren't the first generation of believers really to uh, perhaps collide with certain aspects of how uh, overwhelming, how crazy-making it can be at times to live out the riches of the gospel in the midst of opposition outside and inside the church. So to listen to the theology of 2 Corinthians is indeed to have some incredible text pop and come alive. But I think, once again, the gift of watching, listening to this amazingly gifted and vulnerable and real Paul give us his heart. And uh, that's not eisegeting, it's not psychologizing the text. Uh, it's just been something that's been more dear to me, I would say, in the last uh, five to seven years of ministry, uh, as I get older, just to think about, so who are, who are my dead heroes? Some of those happen to be uh, some English Puritans that lived in an incredible environment of opposition and yet come, kept coming back to the, to the goodness, truth, and beauty of Jesus. But even before them, you know, the, their contagion of living with that degree of uh, hope invading weariness, you know, um, just a great to see what that looks like. It's great to smell people like that. Um, you know, um, I would pray for all of us moving forward in uh, various forms of ministry, life, marriage, singleness, or whatever else. Uh, take note of who offers the aroma of grace and is not just impressive with their craft. Uh, who is becoming gospel wine? They're just vintage. And, uh, and, and yet, like you, that was not automatic. And like what you and I hopefully will become, it's still a war for the heart. Uh, of the many, many things that Jack Miller gave me as mentor, father, brother, and friend, one of the last things he said to me before he went to heaven in 1996, he said, he said, Scotty, I'm believing now, I've come to realize now, that the Christian life is not having less to repent of, it's enjoying quicker repentances. And what was revolutionary about that for me was this in terms of... Uh, you know, with regard to how we think about um, maturing and growing, becoming healthier leaders or a healthier you, uh, throw down your scales and your charts and your thermometers. That's not something you measure. Um, in fact, think of it less as something that's kind of like, I started here and now I'm here. You know, if uh, some of us back, old guys like me and Walt Mueller in the room, in, in the old days we would have charts like this as a, you know, as a, uh, vertical line of horizontal. So you start here, and kind of here's what your growth in Jesus is going to be. You're going to be making progress, but then you're going to have a little this called your junior year in college, and then you know whatever. But we're always making progress. I just don't accept that paradigm. I don't think progress looks like something. It's on a chart. I do believe that um, 
the more of Jesus we see, the more the more of the Trinity, the more uh, we grow space in our hearts for awe, uh, the more we move from wandering into wonder. Um, we don't even think of I'm, I'm better. We just think of he's more glorious. And I see that in Paul. You know, again, many of the images we looked at in Second Corinthians, it's, it's certainly it makes for great poetry and great imagery, but it's great reality because this is who he was. He really, really did hurt. Uh, he really, really did long. And he never, he never was in a season where hope was not more true to him than the reality of uh, incredible difficulty in life and ministry. So before we move into what will, might be a little bit more kind of practical, not steps or something like that, but just a, a track to think about this life of gospel ministry and life of gospel transformation, any questions or comments just coming out of Second Corinthians or what we can learn from Paul or even something I alluded to or even questions you might have for me about. So. Did you ever? What did you do with etc.? So yes. I I heard you say a phrase in the last hour. Uh, it's not so much that you have hope, but that hope has you. Yes. Uh, what What do you mean by that? Okay. All right. So yeah, the comment I made was this: the gospel is the difference between feeling hopeful and having hope. And uh, and then again, another way of saying that was, yeah, we don't hold on to hope which of course and sometimes puts the, puts the pressure on me, how, how good is your grip? But the more to, uh, I think that the more we see the centrality of hope in the story, the more we understand like the promises of God, we don't claim them, they claim us. Now, some of us have come from a background where we see the promises of God, okay, just keep those promises and keep claiming them. And, and the assumption is, the more you claim it, the more likely it will be to be fulfilled. I just don't read the Bible that way anymore. It's God's covenant promises to us that claim us and the cosmos. You know, some of the more popular songs that we have sung in our worship cultures, uh, He Will Hold Me Fast. You know, there's, there's songs now that don't make us passive, but they really show us um, how critical a theology of union with Christ is uh, and how therefore functional communing with Christ needs to be anchored in that. Uh, uh, hope holds us in this sense. Uh, uh, don't know what you think about the name. If I put out the name of the theologian N.T. Wright, if you go immediately to genuflexing and disgust on this theology of justification, I'm not going to chide you. Uh, but as John Stott said before he died, uh, Tom Wright's a little fuzzy on justification, but nobody gets the resurrection better. And uh, Tom Wright's book, uh, Surprised by Hope, and his Magnus Opum, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God, is spectacular. And uh, Tom Wright argues uh, theology of hope basically is coming so alive to God's future that we remember it into the present. And that's kind of clumsy language, but what he means by that is this. That future is already ours. We, we, are, we are already <clears throat> dual citizens. And we didn't apply for citizenship. You know, we have been not just adopted into this Father's heart that we cannot know too well, that we have been made citizens and participates in the kingdom of God now and its fullness that is coming. 
And so I think what that looks like more in terms of uh, hope holding us is, you know, there are times when uh, the existential reality of our faith is not necessarily as, uh, as palpable to us. Uh, as we see hope holding me, the pressure's off thinking I just need to be a little bit more fired up, right? And, and, and again, see, there's nothing wrong, by the way, with spirit good and experience. It runs through scripture. You know, I love the image the way C.S. Lewis captured that at the end of uh, The Last Battle of Chronicles of Narnia, when the children are moving from the uh, Shadowlands into Narnia and beyond, and the Aslan figure basically says to them, you do not yet seem to be as joyful as I intend. Well, you know, that's just Lewis's way of capturing what's going on in John 17 in the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus uh, Interce you know, interceding, communing with the Father uh, in a most magnificent way, describing, I'm so looking forward to sharing with you the glory we knew before the world began. I mean, what are you going to do with that? I mean, that's, you know, let's meditate on that for the upcoming Lent season. Uh, Jesus' self-awareness, but this picture of his intercession, his ministry for us that's continuing to go on, hallelujah, asking the Father that is the Father's, is he is one of the Father, the Father's one of him, that we might be one with them, right? That that we might even know the fullness of his joy. I think that, uh, first of all, that's an eschatological theme, you know, the fullness of his joy, we will know uh, only when Christ returns and finishes make, finish making all things known. But it's our inheritance right now, and it's something that holds us, and there's something even more comforting about the fact that um, Jesus' delight in us, uh, God the Trinity's delight in his people is the greater joy we rest in than, than even us experiencing it, right? Because we, we, we do, listen, you know this, uh, even if you were involved in ministry, I, I assume you know your own heart well enough to know what feelings of elation feel like and also what feelings of just complete vacuum feel like. And a lot of your wisdom is going to be is to steward. Do you know what it means to be human? See, the gospel is not going to make you less human, but more human. And if we're not prepared to look at how the Bible from Genesis through Revelation is just full of God's people aching and longing, and I think for Paul in 2 Corinthians, again, what's been intriguing for me is that the goal is not for that tension to go away, but to steward it better in the context of where we are serving Jesus, you know, uh, to say that we should be, to say that we should be less shocked at how difficult ministry could be, it, it's not a bummer. It, it's just more reality. Do do we do we do we see? I mean, uh, let's let's look very clearly at what's happening. For instance, here we are living in this big cancel culture right now, right? You know, where not not just secular people looking at religious twerps like us and, and let's play, you know, uh, who can outrage the other. But the fact that God's people can bite and devour one another. Language sound familiar? Yeah, it's in the book of Galatians, right? Uh, tragically, Christian cannibalism was a part of the culture before Paul even sucked his last breath. If we keep on biting and devouring one another, we'll be destroyed by one another. 
You know, if any of us were ever in an illusion that, okay, uh, if I just find the right church to serve in, it's just going to be good all the time. You know, be, be careful about how you use words to describe um, certainly men in certain ministry settings. And I'm not saying uh, the caution to the wind and, 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 and being wise and with regard to uh, if the Lord should call you somewhere else. I'm not saying it doesn't matter what's going on there, just to be faithful. Uh, I am saying this, however, based on the testimony of Scripture and church history, knowing and loving and serving and adoring Jesus will always bring with it rapture and rupture until the day of all things new. We are in the creation world now. New creation broke in with the first coming of Jesus. Back to 2 Corinthians, that's what a lot of you that have worked with this text, you know the Greek of 2 Corinthians 5 doesn't say, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, or she is a new creature. Um, the declaration is, if, if, if anyone is in Christ, and then there's that pause, there's no verb, which you know you can, you can uh, by syntax, assume a form of the verb a, me, to be. But again, back to Richard Gatham, one of my favorite instructors at Westminster, he said, now really what's going on here is, Paul's affirming this, if you are in Christ, the new creation now owns you. You, you, you have been, uh, you have just not, you have not just been given uh, the good news of facing death. You're a heart, you, you've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and placed into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, Colossians 1, but you're still living in the tension of the two, the overlapping, the already and the not yet. And so all that to say, I think that uh, we who are, in a, for y'all who have been serving in ministry for longer than some of the newbies that are just here, um, you, you know a lot of this, so I, I assume a lot of what I'm saying today is just refresher, maybe some of the things you know to be true from a from a from an aging boomer with different nuance, but it's not new. But you see, uh, we don't need something novel. Uh, we we need to be also always being brought back to gospel sanity. You know, where did I begin to assume that uh, it should be different than what it is right now, and and how? Do we begin doing ministry as Paul did, back to 2 Corinthians, setting our gaze not on what is seen, but on what is invisible? Now let me pause there. What do you think is going on with that? When Paul says, of himself and to the believers and leaders in Corinth, um, set your gaze on the invisible, not what is seen. Tell me briefly, what are some of the things that... Uh, occur to you in that admonition? What's going on there? I just go to all the times when whatever I'm facing in life or ministry is, I just get tunnel vision on it. Um, and I, my, my world is defined by that conflict or that thing. And I know that Jesus is calling me to something else. But the activity of setting my gaze internally on him in that moment was very hard to do. Yeah. And even when I feel like I'm trying for prayer or some time alone or God, whatever it is, I feel like that's like a drop in the bucket of this overwhelming you know, thing that's taking up my attention. So, so perspective is such a critical part of life and ministry. Perspective, i.e., I, I, what you just said in terms of 
what's going on? Where, where do I tend to lock my gaze more? If, if I'm only doing ministry or life in terms of what I see, I could fall into all kinds of illusions, right? I could think things when I could think that things are better than they really are, right? If, if my uh, if my matrix says we got 170 kids in the youth group, and two years ago we only had 75, well, that that may be a good indicator of something. Uh, or if you think we used to be 175 in post-COVID. We're down to 50 kids now, and, and it's, it's hard. Well, I'm not assuming it's not hard, but, but what do we see? For, for Paul, certainly, when he talks about fixing a gaze on the invisible, that's, that's not look at nothing. I mean, in his heart, like in John's heart, like in the book of Hebrews, how much of Hebrews is, uh, consider those whose gaze was fixed on the city whose builder and maker is God. Because they knew in this life there's no lasting city. That didn't lead to pessimism. At least a real sense of how do I offer redemptive presence with this assurance. There is no wasted ministry of the gospel. That I am to love the next kid in front of me. That I am to be, you know, by the declaration of scripture, to be someone that increasingly loves God the Trinity with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, it's occurred to me in the last five years that might not be a bad way to re not redefine sanctification. It would be so arrogant. But to think of sanctification as sanctification is removing the obstacles to obeying the great commandment. What is keeping me from loving God the Trinity with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? What were the obstacles? Because has that, see, that, again, immediately puts more emphasis on a God-centered view of growth and change rather than will I ever get over being so narcissistic or angry or reactive. You focus there, you're going to use Jesus to become the better you rather than fully understand right now uh, in the richness of union with Christ. Who are we not just legally declared to be, but ontologically are. This isn't a metaphor. We're not, we're not living by metaphors. And, and it is true that those that you know, I, I see now as mentors and models in life, uh, I mean, Rosemary Miller, my spiritual mom, she's 97 right now, clearer thinking than probably half of us in this room almost died in the last year, has had heart surgery and uh, some other surgery. She's so anxious to get back to London so she can continue teaching the Bible to Sikh, Hindi, and Muslim women. Now, she's not thinking life is worthless if I'm not doing something for Jesus. She really does believe there really is only one ultimate story of hope. And I'm so thankful that until Jesus takes me home, I have the privilege. And she's not going back to a fun ministry. And I was there when uh, uh, World Harvest Mission, then now Surge, first planted the London church. And uh, I mean, Jack's vision, see Jack's renewal, and this fits into where we're going here in a minute in Luke 10. When Jack Miller, whatever you think of him or don't think of him, his um, experience uh, in the early 70s of, of moving into um, a greater enjoyment of God, 
greater uh, experiential appreciation for adoption and union with Christ that propelled him into uh, the nations of the world. That was generated the summer of 71 or so when he and Rosemary went to Spain. He did not soak in the promises of God relative to justification and adoption. If I just get a better hold on my justification, I'll be okay. Or for those that know Jack Miller and think of the name adoption, I bet Jack spent that whole summer in Spain just pondering Abba Father. Neither. What he did was soak himself in the missionary promises of God. And he came back because we at Westminster who were there in the mid-70s, the late 70s. We had him in class. And what he could not stop talking about was God's commitment in owning all of history to redeem his every nation bride for the glory of Jesus. And, and so as a result of that, New Life Press, where he planted the first New Life Church, they started sending out missionaries more. As they sent out missionaries, one of the first teams to London, what they recognized early on, Jack gave them a zeal for God's commitment to, of this every nation bride. I remember, I, I remember one day in class, Jack is preaching from uh, Zechariah 8. And maybe that was your most recent text you preached, but Zechariah 8 has this incredible picture that I've never seen before either, of, of really how uh, he said, you know, the Lord says, a day is coming when uh, uh, the people, uh, 10 people from every nation will grab hold of one Jew by the garb and say, let us go with you because we hear the Lord is in your midst. And Jack went from teaching a group of Westminster students to preaching, and he just bent over his lectern and said, and that one Jew is Jesus. And the entire history of the world is tied to his being a great and gracious redeemer. Of course we want to go into every community, hamlet, county, state in America, and country in the world, because this is the heartbeat of history. Jesus died for that big of a bride. He loves that much. Well, when he sent out this first band of missionaries from New Light Press to London, in about two years he realized, y'all are all bored and boring. You fight among yourselves. And that's when he started realizing you need to be formed more deeply, a we who love this reformed theology, in connecting the lyric, music, and dance of the gospel. A lot of reformed people, including us, I'll just point the finger at me because this is where I started. A lot of us get a better hold on the lyric of the gospel, the theology of the Reformation, before we hear its music. The music of the gospel is what we see in Paul. It's a lot of the effective language of even that runs through the book of Revelation when John himself is just seeing and is responding in a way. And I would not say that we don't love Jesus almost like John. We have fallen down in adoration before what we see in Scripture. But I will say this, there's something terribly beautiful and alluring to me about someone like John the Apostle who has served Jesus faithfully through a lot of persecution and pain to, to stay alive to God's self-revelation of God the Trinity and for it to be that effective. Lyric of the gospel, profound theology, the music winging its way into our heart. The dance of the gospel is literally this, and this is what we're going to look at in Luke 10. Lyric, music, and dance. Theology, doxology, missiology. The dance of the gospel, I think, is really summarized well in the great benediction in Romans uh, 
1620, when Paul's winding down that very cosmopolitan letter, compendium of our salvation, for you know, uh, a, a young, uh, welcoming church in Rome, all kinds of people, that benediction, here, here's the dance of the gospel, and Paul says to them and to us, and the God of all shalom will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I thought, that seems weird, first time I read that. Hadn't Satan already been crushed? Well, that's exactly the point. The promise, defeat of evil, of course, that God promised to and promised it would come through those who needed most, Adam and Eve, um, was Jesus. And, and the crushing that Isaiah had more to say about, of course, on Isaiah, end of 52, 53. Hallelujah, that's once and for all. Has, let's play catechism here. Has Satan been defeated? Neutral question. Yeah. Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And he, he did. That's what Calvary is all about. D-Day has happened. But in the nomenclature of uh, World War II, you have D-Day and you have V-Day, right? You're, you're old enough maybe to remember that one. So just pretending that might just be a, a, it might just be a very, you know, you have a, a prematurely gray beard. You're only 41. But, you know, uh, Oscar Kuhlmann, who probably ha you probably have not read, or you may have read, maybe one of your favorite French theologians post-Reformation, uh, he was the one that helped us to begin to think about this uh, illustration in World War II, uh, seeing the uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as D-Day, and Ascension, Ascension's critical, and Pentecost is critical. But V-Day was when, of course, the one war is now officially over. See, and, and, and Kuhlman argued, as we see, and Paul, as we see throughout Scripture, um, a, a gospel sanity is going to be saved. That's exactly where we do life and ministry. We live in light of the fact that Satan has been defeated. But here's the way we connect with the God of all shalom will soon crush Satan, crush Satan under our feet. It means that it's not, a, it's not an image of triumphalism. I mean, aren't, aren't we glad, thankfully, that to listen well to the Bible does not lead us to beat our chest and say, we read the end of the book and we win. How obnoxious would that be? That sounds so American, right? We win. No, we read the end of the book and we see that the Lamb has triumphed over all things, including us. In fact, uh, this just came up to me in the last, I don't know, probably a few years, just, to, um, you know, uh, again, I'm not as busy as most of you now. Darlene and I live alone, and we get to take the grandkids home and drop them off, but just pondering different images, and I thought of this whole theme of the Lamb triumphs over all things, and the function of that in ministry is triumphed over us, we, us being captured and held by hope. Um, in Ephesians 4, Paul uses an image that he, as someone saturated in the Old Testament scripture, borrows and fills with new gospel meaning. And maybe you know that image. Paul says, speaking of the Messiah, you know, when he, when he ascended, he led captives and gave gifts to men. Remember that text? Important, very important part of uh, the calling to be the people of God living in community. Who are we? What do we have to live out our calling? Well, don't lose the imagery and run onto 
gifts. Okay, everybody's been gifted. Now think about this. Uh, how does the Messiah, how did Jesus fulfill and is fulfilling that great promise of he descended and then he ascended on high, led, to, led captives in his training, gave gifts to men. The background of that is the exact opposite, opposite of what a secular king would do. It's warfare imagery. You know, uh, in the day of tribalism, and maybe we're on the cusp of it now as we're seeing 100,000 forces from Russia on the border of the Ukraine. You know, we, uh, I pray we do not live through a war in Europe coming up, but hold on to the reality that stuff's just not in the past. You know, in, uh, in, uh, in Israel's day, typically a nation would threaten harm and bring it to bear. And when it would happen, often in, uh, uh, in the world of the Hittites, uh, other nations, even nations before, uh, you're a conquering king. What you want to do is to bring shame and terror to bear. So you pillage the uh, treasury of the people you've conquered. You get the nobles and those in control, and you parade them and shame through the city. You take captives. And you're going to make a declaration to that city, that area where you have just brought, you know, your dominion. You're now mine. I've got your stuff. Well, see, the gospel takes that image and turns it completely upside freaking down. We're not living in a parade of shame. We're living in a parade of grace. And the ultimate king is coming to this world not to pillage, but to save. And he dies for rebels and idolaters like me and he conquers and captures us and brings us into what again just my language uh, a parade of grace which destination is the new heaven and new earth and he, he rather than taking from us he gives to us and gives through us that's where Paul begins to move in in Ephesians to the whole imagery of you know he's given leaders to the body of Christ which would be you guys, and guys generic for men and women. I was youth pastor for 10 years, so we know guys is not gender language. You have been given. You have been captured, and you've been given to be those who live with regard to understanding where is history going. It's going all the way into the new heaven and new earth. It will require the second coming of this king, but D-Day has secured D-Day. Therefore, we don't beat our chests, but we don't run away when simply it is too much. We walk with friends that understand what gospel sanity looks like when ministry is difficult. We, we don't allow ourselves posing and pretending. I mean, please enjoy that. The, the gospel puts an end to all your posing and pretending. You don't have to fake it. And when it's hard, um, one more story, and we will get to the text here. Uh, one of my greatest privileges in life began 20 years ago when one of the founders of the PCA, Terry Geiger, some of you know that name, he and men like Charles McGowan and Frank Barker, I mean the early fathers of the PCA, and I'm not assuming we're all PCA by the way either. But uh, Terry, uh, when we were all probably in our mid or late 40s, said, I am a fear for you boomer leaders. So he 
picked about 17 of us to begin walking together, and we've been walking together for 20 years. And uh, when Terry got us together, he said, here's what I want us to do. Every fall, I want us to meet in Atlanta, back when there used to be the Simpsonwood Conference Center. Do you remember Simpsonwood, of course? Steve, and uh, we'd meet there, and Terry would have us there. He said, here's what we're going to do for the next three days. We're going to pray. We're going to check in with each other. And, uh, and basically what that looked like in the early days was this. You know, you got 17 boomers. Two-thirds of us went to Westminster around about at the same time. Uh, others kind of came in. But it started kind of at a level of guys kind of looking around the room saying, well, I know you, and yet what's this about? Yeah, I need to really. So for the first couple of years, it felt like more like ministry chops. What's working? Tim Keller had just planted in New York. So early on, I said, Tim, what, you know, what are you finding? Uh, uh, Joe Novenson, a lookout mountain, Skip Ryan out of Dallas. I mean, just an amazing group of, of friends. So we're, we're all kind of talking. What are we doing? You know, uh, this, that, and the other. Well, one by one, we started suffering. And the temperature of those conversations changed. And going to Atlanta every October became more about, I'm so thankful I can be with brothers who understand how much we need the gospel. And prayer became more central and continues to be more central. We still meet. Skip's story, so if you know that name, Skip was one of the first in our group that uh, having planted uh, Park City's prayers out of Highland Park Prayers, had back surgery, boom, oxycodone becomes a way of relieving the pain and helping him sleep four hours a night and get a lot more stuff done. He gets addicted. One of those times we're in Atlanta, Tim and Bill Edgar, Bill who teaches apologetics at Westminster, Philly, they said, well, yeah, Skip's not with us, but he's in the city. He's, he's just checked into a rehab center here in Atlanta. Let's pray for him. And you know what? The domino effect of, of guys beginning to go through hard ministry stuff. And if you're under any illusion that Tim Keller has got the free ride in all of this, none of you would say that. In fact, this past October, when we were together, six of us were Zooming in. Um, six of us, uh, I think there were 14 of us this year. Tim took us one morning with him into his chemotherapy. He didn't want to miss a morning. So we go and we see our brother sitting in a chair with the, with the uh, chemo going in to kill the cancer cells. We're weak. He himself has, has been getting it from both sides of the continuum more than ever. And no one handles it with more kindness and grace. And if one of us went through a divorce, some of us have had kids that basically are not sure if they believe anything anymore. But we are, by God's grace, confident of where this story is going. And it's not just a story. And to weep, and to hold and to laugh and to run after one another. We have been Jonah and we have run after each other to Tarshish. We have, some of us had unexpected transitions we would have never planned for. And we got really angry at elders that began to feel like drive-by shootings. And it's been so, such an honor to hurt, to suffer, to long, to pray, and to repent with brothers that are getting closer and closer and closer to heaven.
how I got pulled into that bunch truly to me is like, you know, like Paul referred to himself as one born out of due season. I mean, really, just the honor to have been there at all for me. Like the beauty, and it's the beauty that we see in Paul. It's the beauty we see throughout Scripture. If, if we listen, it's the beauty I want to kind of use. Oh, the last looks like, uh, I, okay, uh, was one of our t- official timekeepers. Are we here till 10 minutes till the hour? Is that right? We break at 10 minutes till, is that right? Okay, all right, good. Okay, so we're, we're good. We got we got Look with me, if you would, and I'm not trying to break the moment here or whatever else. I want you to see what we've just been talking about in Luke 10 as a way that might help us say, okay, if, if Paul is a fresh model of the beauty of the interplay of weariness and hope, if Paul is someone that modeled during the most difficult season of his ministry, the honesty of about it feeling like too much and his willingness to submit to a young son in the faith, Titus, just to love his heart, and for him to continue into stewarding his pain, where he ended up saying, did God answer my prayer? Those three earnest prayers for the removal of my thorn of flesh, he sure did, he gave me sufficient grace. And for Paul not to see that answer as plan B, but plan A, well, consider how Jesus, even early in the Gospel of Luke, began to take a, a just delightful group of individuals, uh, whether they're 70 or 72, it doesn't make any difference. I read one time uh, someone said, uh, oh yeah, there were 72 countries in the world when Jesus made that. So it was his way of saying 72 nations. There's nothing that says there were 72 nations. So let's just let's just stay with what he did say. Just don't guess about the other stuff, okay? But in Luke 10, just want you kind of, and I pray this will be like maybe 2 Corinthians, something, something that you'll sit in to say is God is the architect of the whole Bible. Uh, so he's the architect of the individual parts. And the collective stories that Dr. Luke, the Gentile author of over half of the New Testament, arranged it under the Spirit's inspiration, just this one chapter has a lot to tell us. We're not going to go through all of it, but let's just consider some of the things that are being said here that can help us calibrate as perhaps the most senior part of the ROIM culture moving ahead and really wanting to um, um, not just finish well, but live well right now, okay? So uh, Luke 10, 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Now, I'm not going to go all the way back giving you the background to the after this. Obviously, transition phrases are key. But at least remember this in terms of as chapter 10 begins. At least remember Luke chapter 4, when Jesus shows up in the synagogue and opens the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and deliberately says, I'm the one Isaiah wrote about. With my arrival, the year of the Lord's favor begins. I have come to what? Give life to limbs and eyes that are not functioning, to set the captive free, uh, to proclaim the, the salvation of the Lord. In other words, Jesus in Luke 4 gives a very holistic, comprehensive view of the work of the Messiah. 
It's reconciliation to God, and it is shalom, the putting of all things right, which eventually will be, of course, a light from the new heaven and new earth. So, so that's a part of the after this. A part of the after this from Luke 4, following up to chapter 10, calling of, calling of individual disciples and making it really clear, I'm calling you to be with me, okay? Not do for me, be with me. And there are, of course, other stories that you might say, this is really key. You know, look at Jesus already demonstrating before uh, chapter 10, his power over na nature. You know, he can calm the storm. His power over evil, he, he releases the demonic. Well, now we see in light of who he is and that he is here, where we figure in more. So he sends the 72 in every place in town and, and, and um, every place immediately in the proximity. That expands, of course, we know uh, before his ascension. But look at verse 10. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, why is it important for you and for me to remember Jesus' statement? There's nothing wrong with the harvest. What's the function of that? Harvest is full. Nothing wrong with the harvest. Workers, what's the function personally for you even? Where you're even laboring now? What, what, what does that imply? The harvest is full. What does that mean? Yes? It's not necessarily a problem with your students or you know, the, the people that are around you. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, 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 again, back to don't go by what you see. I mentioned to you one of the great things about living in the same city for a long time is finally some of those obnoxious kids love Jesus more than me. Different things. Uh, you know, to have planted a church, had a 10-year renewal, and then a new church at the first buzz crops up called Fellowship Bible Church, and 20% of our members transfer because they don't have debt. And to go through difficult things, painful things, that now I've lived long enough to see some of the people I've avoided in the publics, we weep together, we dance together. You stay present long enough. You're going to see, listen, the Father say, I've got this one. Love me, stay present. Your calling is not to be impressive. Your calling is to be present. There's nothing wrong with the harvest. And so right out of the boot, and you know where the story's going to go. It's going to be an extraordinary moment up, and it's almost like, okay, Jesus is going to kind of over-enthuse them, right? But, but it's not going to always look like the initial return of the 72. But let's just, just take note of what else is going on here, because it's, it's, it is the history of redemption. It's what, until we are in the new earth together, some things we want to get a hold of, see, and not forget, and see what it looks like contextually where Jesus has called us to serve now and in other seasons in our story. So uh, harvest is plentiful. Um, Jesus did not die to make salvation possible, but actual. This is a big part of, you know, Wherever you are in your journey of liking, disliking, not understanding, dismissing certain aspects of our faith, learn to love a theology of election. Because it's God, it is not God bless us for it no more. It is God's commitment to have a people so numerous, John in Revelation 7, he could count 144,000 coming through the 12 tribes of Israel, even that's a symbolic number. But he could not count the overwhelming number coming towards him, holding palm branches, crying out, worthy is the lamb from 
every people group that have ever sucked oxygen. He saw it, he believed it. It's rooted in all the promises of God. It's happening where you live right now. Things are not as they appear. You're not naive, you're not in denial. It's supposed to hurt. It hurt Jesus standing outside of Lazarus's tomb when his friend dies, even though he's gonna raise him. This is not numbing out, it's being present. So he sends them. All right, what about this language? Well, look at verse 3. Now, talk about, uh, I'm not sure how many of you got this course in seminary or Bible college. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Hallelujah. I was hoping for that one, Jesus. Good. I am weak like a lamb, and you're telling me as you send me, here's a part of the environment I'm going to live in. Ravenous. Uh, predation. Now, not always and everywhere, all the time. But but this is this is this is you know this this is not this is not so much sobering like okay get sad. It's more like okay thank you. you you're you're not spinning the history of redemption, Jesus. You know so so there's times when it's going to feel like I am weak uh, as a lamb. I ain't got nothing left. You know. Uh, and it feels like, you know, there, there's, if there's not wolves, there's a, certainly a roaring lion seeking to devour. So you send them out, and then a few more things. What about uh, verse 4? Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. Now, okay, let's, let's put this in context. Not everything for the 72 is decidedly legalist, legalistically has a parallel for you, but there's a clear pattern here. Um, don't think your need is to over-resource yourself. Something about going in dependence. You know, even as God's people are traveling from Egypt to uh, Egypt to the Promised Land, you know, no, don't go stuffing manna in your pocket. I'm going to feed you every day. And see, I. The two main idols in my heart that became obvious in terms of the counseling I needed to do with my wife after my burnout was uh, this deep-seated idol of control. I want to control my world. And my second idol, a pain-free heart. And those, those sleep together. I cannot risk more pain in my world having lost people through death and my innocence through sexual abuse as an eight-year-old kid. I cannot risk pain, so I want to control my environment, my world, friendships, relationships, ministry. I will not risk more pain. And if you're just committed to be a preacher, that can work. But none of us are just called, quote-unquote, to be a preacher. So you don't get 17 backpacks full of you know stuff. You're going to go, I'm going to provide for you. This picture here of do not greet anyone on the road, I think that's just, again, let's, again, let's don't over, let's don't isogee for sure, but let's not over kind of work it. Um, uh, I'm sending you, uh, just don't, you know, you know, stay in the lanes of the history of redemption. Um, it's not a popularity contest, you're not greeting everybody. And again, I, again, I want to be, I want to be more focusing on what is here before our break rather than just kind of some inferences, but that's okay. Folk, you know, stay present. Do you, do you know? I mean, it's, it's kind of like almost, uh, remember the uh, amazing story in the book of Judges 
when God decides to present his people as to be the weak means by which he is going to be a great and gracious redeemer. And uh, Gideon emerges and Gideon blows his horn or whatever. And what, 34,000 show up? And the, what does the Lord say to Gideon relative to 34,000? It's too many. You might be tempted to think, look what we did. So let's just try this. Uh, go by the water and Gideon, look for the one-handed water lappers. Who, who drinks with their hand looking ahead because they know we're, we're the, the Midianite camp, so they're going to be aware. They're gonna, not going to, ah, hey guys, hey, you want to come with us? We've got this great rabbi. We're going to go do some stuff. Now, stay present. Well, from 34,000 to 300, and all you get is a big lighter and a pitcher to break. I mean, the themes of... It's, it's the youngest son of David with pebbles. It's, 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 it's a blind Samson. Um, do not despise. Don't look to you, your resources, as uh, what's going to really explain should God bless you with revival. He's always faithful. The harvest is underway. Let's go forward a little bit more. Again, I'm being mindful of my uh, tenure. Okay, we got 10 more minutes. Good. When you, when you enter a house, say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will turn to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Just would say here by inference, it's just a picture of presence. Just, just be present. Um, you're, you're not a pragmatist. You're called to offer something that Jesus alone can ultimately resource, and he is. Um, when you enter a town and are welcomed, uh, eat what is said before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and you're not welcomed, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, that does not mean, hallelujah, I was looking for a good cancel culture verse. So I can just go dissing on parents that don't really get me in my ministry. or I can, This is not what's going on there. You know that. I think a part of it is at least this, okay? It's not everything. It's at least this. Don't assume wherever you minister the gospel, everybody's going to welcome you. And know that God himself takes responsibility for the ultimate outcome. And, uh, and they're just, just an appropriate place of resting in that, right? You do your best ministry by leading, not pushing. Be present. Don't be in a hurry. Just stay in the story. Well, and then we go forward. Well, let's go. Um, because of time. Well, let me make one thing for sure. Why, why did Jesus commission his people to talk about the kingdom more than just the gospel? Not a trick question. Pointing to the future hope. The future hope and the fact that really the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom, right? In other words, it's not two different things. But uh, see, in, in our generation, and we need to think for ourselves too, if we only think of the gospel as preparing people to die, then we don't really understand what... Jesus has come to do comprehensively uh, 
concomitant with life, death, resurrection, and of course the second coming. Point is this, uh, the, the number one motif from, from Eden into the new earth is the kingdom of God. Grim Goldsworthy says the three things that always mark the kingdom of God in every generation from Eden to the new earth are God's people and God's place under God's rule. The unfolding of God's commitment to be a gracious, redeeming, restoring king that always involves his people, placing them in his place, happens to be our world, that he's not going to replace, but it's going to transform. And so we pronounce the kingdom, and, and we preach the kingdom. And um, again, go jump over 13 and 15 down to um, uh, verse 16. Right Again, he's commissioning them. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. I don't know how much you and I live with that awareness. Um, I'm not being rejected here. If the, if the kids, you know, don't really rise up and call me blessed. I mean, please, please, please continually know that if you throw your heart into cruise control, Self-validation in ministry, it's something we all deal with in different ways at different times. But Jesus is making it clear. I'm, I'm giving you an amazing announcement to declare, and, and it's going to bring about things that you might be tempted to think, I got this thing. Or might, it's going to bring about things as well when you think, you know, uh, God, I'm glad you're a God who takes responsibility for judgment, and I've got to revoke revenge because sometimes it's really hard. But the beauty here... Um, we speak for him, and Jesus is with us. So, again, a great place to kind of land this section is we move towards lunch and rest of the day for you, dear friends. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, what? I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes, scorpions, overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice your names are in heaven. A couple of comments there. Sometimes you have seen the Lord do things you did not have faith for. Sometimes it's in the conversion of mere kids. Don't ever think that that was about you. Um, other things happen. You, you you pray for you know you pray for a family in your church, and you didn't necessarily think the cancer was going to go away because you're not Pentecostal, but it did. <laughs> and you got to let me tell you a real story about that. So when we first came to Nashville in '79, one of the first guys that started mentoring was a quarterback for Vanderbilt. He had just graduated from Brooklyn Academy, all state basketball and football. John Patton. And uh, John was champion is going to be just really a fine quarterback at Vanderbilt. Well, he had a, a really bad uh, uh, injury, and um, he lost nerve endings in his foot. And uh, it's not good for a quarterback or anybody. And he got me one morning, he said, Scotty, will you, I'm bringing some oil, will you pray for me? Of course, John, I'll pray for you. I want you to pray the Lord will heal my foot. He did. Now, not... I mean, went to the neurologist and there was a healing and certain nerve endings of John's foot that was clearly discernible. He, however, was not able to be fully the quarterback. He became the, the third down quarterback at Vanderbilt that could pooch kick as well. So 
His career was not what, you know, but I was shocked that God gave a gift of healing. And we know, you and I know, there's nothing automatic about, okay, if I pray right, okay? No, God's promises claim us. We go in the name of Jesus. Tim Keller put it this way years ago. He said, look, don't think of the miracles in the New Testament as a miracle. Think of them as a return to normalcy. Because in Eden, there was no demonism. There was no sickness. Think of when God breaks in in the kingdom and there are everything from spectacular moments of healing, etc. That this is, this is saying, you know, we're not going back to Eden. Eden was just a preview of coming attractions called the New Earth. But the kingdom is here. I pray we will increasingly pray and not pressure anybody to get over just because we pray for them. But we do go. And this particular situation, disciples saw this. Jesus makes this statement. I saw Satan fall from heaven. Of course, that's speaking of, I think, uh, uh, prophetically of, of, of the um, magnificence of where uh, the cross is going to deal the blow that will eventually bring about the ultimacy of life and the kingdom and its fullness. Um, but, you know, best place for us to stop, stop is verse 20 and then verse 21. What do you suppose Jesus is saying to his servants, these 72, about, look, enjoy, rejoice, appreciate the fact that I, I, I am gifting and calling you to be servants in my kingdom, but Reserve your greatest joy for knowing that your names are written in heaven. What does that mean to say your name is written in heaven? What does that mean? My name is in heaven. Your name is in heaven in the Lamb's Book of Life, written in the blood of Christ, the indelible ink of grace. No one and nothing will take us from the love of God. The saints will persevere. I mean, that is an overwhelming The assurance of your salvation, never get too familiar with that. Never say, yeah, I've got that, but what's next? Oh, that we would be forever stunned. And that there would be joy in the midst of things that are not joy producing, to know our names are written in heaven. And we could talk about that one the rest of the day, but I do want to land this next picture. This is something that just recently, in the last three days, even praying about our time, that just jumped out at me. So look at, right up to that, verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Father, Father, too. I wish, you know, again, I don't say this sentimentally, but what would it have been like to hear Jesus rejoice, to see that palpable joy? I mean, um, I'm encouraged, number one, he knows where he's going. He's already in his public ministry experiencing opposition, but rejoicing in the Holy Spirit as the incarnate Son of God, our substitute to trust before he's our model to follow. And then this picture that I think might be, if you were, if you're ever going to get a tattoo, it's too many words for a tattoo, but 
just these words, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these from the proud, but you have revealed them to the children. That's us. The 72 of the children. We're the children. Who are we as the servants of Jesus? We are the unlikely ones that are called to go with Jesus into his world and story. And what a privilege, what an honor, what a mystery. We don't, we don't know how in God's pleasure um, certain people are just going to get it now while you're still around to appreciate it or quote-unquote get it later when you don't have time to take credit for it. But enjoy the fact that you know the, 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 the R and RYM is, is not a throwaway title for mean-spirited right Calvinists. It is for humbled men and women that are so thankful. The gospel, there's, there's nothing more than the gospel. There's just more of the gospel. And I'm going to pray for you now. Again, I thank you for who you are and what you do and where you serve. I thank you for your scars, your pain, your joys. I thank you that to, with you that we can agree our labors in the Lord are not in vain because Jesus' labors for us are once and for all perfect. Hallelujah, what a Savior and salvation. Let me pray. Father, thank you once again for this calling to me today to remember things that I know to be true. But Lord, need in this season, as I walk with so many leaders in places where it really, really is hard right now. So Lord, for these, uh, Lord, who are your little children by redemption and adoption, sent, Lord, at times among wolves, always to learn more of your resourcing and faithfulness, but, Lord, privileged to have joy when, indeed, things happen, and, and, and we're thankful for the breakings in of the kingdom. But we are even more thankful, Lord, for the fact that the great kingdom story for us individually is that you have rescued us from us. You have rescued us from the dominion of darkness, Father, and placed us into the kingdom of the Son of your love. You have sealed us with your spirit. Nothing can separate us from your love. We are in this parade of grace. May we live and love to your glory until the day Jesus returns to finish making all things new. In whose name we do pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you all.